About eight years ago, a young woman named Tyndall Baldwin wrote a book, and she wrote a powerful book based on her own personal journey. It's called Popular Boys, Booze, and Jesus. And if you're a parent or you ever bribe your kids to read a book, like, hey, if you read this book, I'll give you 20, this is worth 50, okay? Especially if you have daughters, all right? And, or if you have granddaughters. In fact, uh, I actually have 10 copies with me this morning. Uh, most of them are up on this front chair up here. I've got one here. So for 10 bucks after service, you can grab one of those, first come, first serve, okay? But uh, this book, in this book, she shares about a big decision that she made about the age of 15 to ultimately depart from her Christian upbringing and to embrace a lifestyle that we've been talking about over the last few weeks as we've been in, the judge, in Judges, a life in which I want to do, in which I do what I want, when I want, with who I want. And in one of her talks, she poses this uh, important question. What do you do when your body wants what your heart knows is wrong? What do you do when your body wants what your heart knows is wrong? And it's a powerful and it's an uncomfortable question. What do you do when your body wants what your heart knows is wrong? Now, the, the thing about this question, the thing about this question for all of us is that you and I could go back in time a year, five years, ten years, twenty years from now, maybe two nights ago, and you don't have to imagine what you might do when your body wants what your heart knows is wrong. Because every one of us has a season in our life or a stage in our life or a really bad day or there was that one night and we experienced this dilemma. It could be that we acted out physically with another person or it was our decision to spend time on a porn site or more and we kept going back and deep down your heart knew, like, I shouldn't do this. I don't believe this is going to end well ultimately. I hope nobody finds out about this. You know, what do I do? What do you do when your body wants something that your heart knows is wrong? And this is an important, important question for all of us. Uh, if you're an adult, you've lived long enough to know that the way that we answer this question and the way that you answer this question consistently in some way determines the direction of your life. And, and, and while we know that how we answer this physically and sexually is huge. It applies beyond just sexually. It can be working to fulfill your body's want, your body's want for stuff, for purchases and spending that ends up getting you into debt. It's relationships that just leave you with guilt or a toxic place, a place where you wish you could go back, where you wish you could undo some things, unsay some things. Because in that moment, in that moment, the want of your body overpowered what you knew deep down and your heart was wrong, or you wish, as we talked about last week, that you could go back and unmeet some people, go back and, and un, unconnect, uncall, untext, unmessage, unrespond to some people, swipe left to the left, everything in a box to the left, delete the app, you know, wish you'd never gone, and regardless of what you believe in terms of religion, you've lived long enough to know that this is an important question, because as you've already experienced, if you get this wrong, it has the potential to send you down a path or several paths that you may never fully recover from. So what do you do when your body wants what your heart knows is wrong? Now, we're in the middle of this series, It's My Life, and we've been in the book of Judges. And as we said, Moses gets the Israelites out of Egypt to the border of what's referred to as the Promised Land. Uh, there were the 12 tribes of Israel, and Joshua took them in. 
He gets the dorm rooms all set up, says, okay, you're in, gives him some instructions, don't screw this up, then he dies. That might be a little oversimplification, but so there's then this 330-year period between that and the time that they become a monarchy, they have their first king, and in this in-between time, Israel was ruled by judges that were uh, appointed to administer the law, and this was a dark and terrible time in the life of Israel. In fact, if you've missed the first message of this series, I strongly encourage you to go back and listen to. Some are affectionately calling it the concubine and the chainsaw, so you should go back and listen to that, all right? Uh, but they, Israel went through this cycle, and it might sound a little bit familiar. They would disobey God. There would be a disaster. They would face the consequences of their decisions, and then they would beg God for help, and then God would deliver them or get them out of trouble, so basically, this is us. You know, God, if you get me out of this, I will never, ever do this again. God, if I don't get caught, or if my parents, or my boss, or my spouse doesn't find out, I promise, you know, you've got flashing lights in your rearview mirror. Like, God, if you get me out of this with just a warning, I swear, I will now drive 500, or 500, five miles under the suggested speed limit for the rest of my life, and then God bails you out, or it just works out, and the next thing you know, you know, you're getting pulled over like a month later. You're right back in trouble. Well, Israel went through this over and over and over again. And then at the end of the book, which is where we began the series, The Concubine and the Chainsaw Message, the book just ends so dark. And it ends with this statement, that in those days, there was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. It was, don't tell me what to do. I make my own moral compass. It's my life. I can do what I want, when I want, with whom I want. And part of the reason that they kept getting into trouble is because, like us, they kept looking around instead of looking up. And they began looking around at everyone else around them. And then over time, you know, after seeing their highlight reels and like, oh, they've got it so good and life is so good. And so we want to do what they do. Over time, as they expressed their freedom, you know, God, we don't want to do what you tell us to do. We don't have to obey the law. As they expressed their freedom, they lost their freedom. And the very nations that they copied ultimately captured and controlled them and they suffered. And this happened over and over and over again during these 330 years. Now, during this time, you can count them differently, but there's basically 12 judges. Uh, the two most famous were Gideon and Samson. And even if you didn't grow up in church, odds are that you've heard these names. Uh, next week, we're going to look at Gideon, but today, we're going to dig into the story of Samson. And the reason that he's such an important character and a person in the book of Judges, and to all of us, is because Samson, Samson was essentially a microcosm or a reflection of what was happening in the nation of Israel, and in some ways a reflection of what's happening in our nation today, and in some ways it may be, as you hear this, in your personal world as well. Now God had established or, and called and formed Israel, beginning uh, really in Egypt, to, begin a, to be, ultimately be a light and a reflection of His glory and strength, that He was going to do something so dramatic with this slave state that it would just cause the world to take notice and they were to reflect his glory uh, to, to the nations around them. So God had a very specific purpose and plan for the nation. And in the same way as we're going to see, he had a very specific plan and purpose for Samson as well. He gave Samson a very specific gifting and a role. In fact, he was going to be so gifted that he was going to attract a lot of attention. And then his purpose was to then reflect that attention back to God and say, hey, the reason why I'm so strong, the reason that I could do all of these amazing things is because God's Spirit rests on me. 
Just like Israel was to reflect, you know, the reason that we're so blessed, the reason we have all this military strength and might and influence is because God's Spirit rests on us. Our God is the, is the one God and the one true God. Your God is not. Well, in the same way as Israel got off the path and purpose that God had for them, Samson did the same thing. And again, the problem that he had is that he kept looking around and he saw how other men lived in these cultures around him and he wanted to live like other men. And he got enamored, as we're going to see, with Philistine women. And just like the nation, Samson decided, hey, when it comes to my sexuality and to sex, I'm going to do what I want, when I want, with whom I want. Nobody is going to tell me what to do, including God. Now, this is a very big problem because his birth story begins like a lot of the famous birth stories, people in the Bible, an angel shows up to childless parents and goes, I have great news. You're going to have, and they're like, a boy. Like, how did you know? Yes, you're going to have a boy. Yes, you're going to have a son, and the spirit, and he's going to be special, and the Spirit of God is going to rest on him, and God is going to use your son, so you're to raise him differently because God wants him to be separate and to be called out and to do extraordinary things. So the angel of the Lord says to Samson's parents uh, that he was to take what was called a Nazarite vow. Now, this is not like Nazareth, okay? That was a place. It's a Nazarite vow. Some of you have heard of this. Basically, with a Nazarite vow, he was to not do three things. Uh, he must not drink any grape juice or, or wine. He must not touch anything dead, which like, how do you live your life, not touch anything dead? Do you like wound mosquitoes and spiders? I don't know. Uh, and he must never cut his hair. Now, the thing with a Nazarite vow is in ancient times, this was generally something someone decided to do for themselves. Like they're going through a rough time and they want to get God's attention, so they're going to take this vow, so they would, they would uh, write off wine, they wouldn't, they wouldn't touch anything dead, they wouldn't cut their hair. And generally, a Nazarite vow lasted about 30 to 90 days. So in Samson's case, it's like poor kid. I mean, the parents tell him from a young age, hey, by the way, the reason we're not cutting your hair isn't because we want to be those parents where you're stylish and we're afraid to cut your hair because you lose your babyhood. It's none of that. It's like, no, an angel of the Lord showed up. You have a Nazarite vow that is part of your life, not for 30 days or 90 days, but your whole life. So he didn't get to decide this. But he did get to decide whether or not he was going to lean into it and respect it and honor it and be faithful to what God had called him to do. So as a teenager, he essentially becomes a border patrol guy uh, uh, b- between the land of Israel and the Philistines down close to the coast. So he's around other men, uh, young men his age, but they realize that Samson is something special because he's got this extraordinary strength. Now this is something important because for some of you, many of you, you've heard this Bible story and the story of Samson or you grew up in church and when you hear this story, somehow you think of this like extraordinary big guy with like rippling muscles. But the problem is when you meet a really large guy with huge muscles and then they're able to do something extraordinary with their strength, I mean, nobody's surprised. Like nobody goes like, oh my gosh, I can't believe he could pick that up or he was able to tear that phone book in half. It used to be a thing we used to use with paper, whatever. Uh, I can't believe that. No, odds are he probably, he probably looked like me. You know, because if I did something really extraordinarily strong, wherever you like, whoa, like God, God must be with him. It was that sense of, I mean, just look at him. So odds are Samson didn't look extraordinary. But the text says that when the Spirit of God came on him, he could do extraordinary things physically. So as a young man, he was immediately recognized as a leader and eventually became a judge. 
And so as a young man, he's essentially a border patrol agent between Israel and the Philistines. And this is where the story begins to be, become interesting because as he worked on the border to defend the country from the Philistines, he became enamored with Philistine women. And once in a while at night, he'd creep across the border, he'd go down into these border towns, he would hook up with Philistine women, and the problem was, number one, this is the enemy. And the second problem is the Philistines hated Samson. He had cost them so much money. He had been directly involved in or assisted in the instrumental death of multiple thousands of Philistine soldiers because he was such a strong warrior and a great leader. But over and over and over again, he found himself in trouble with Philistine women. In fact, the very first thing that we learn about him, other than his birth, is that he went down to Timnah, where he saw, and that's where it all begins for most of the regrets that we have in our life, we saw, he saw there a young Philistine woman. And then after crossing back from the border, across from, back from where he should never have been in the first place, he goes to his mom and dad, he says, I have seen, I have seen a Philistine woman in Timnah. Now get her for me as my wife. It's like, what? We're at war with these people. Like, you shouldn't even be down there with these people. It's Samson, you know better. You've, now you've gone there and you've seen this woman and you want your parents to risk their lives to go find this woman for you? His father and mother replied, I just as a parent, I think this is just such a parent. Isn't there an acceptable woman among your relatives or among your people? Must you go to the uncircumcised Philistines to get a wife? Now, this was a dig because it's like, look, they're not even part of God's covenant. They're not part of our, our people group. They're not God's people. Samson, come on. Your birth was predicted by an angel. You've been called by God for something special. He set you up for something big. If anybody shouldn't be getting involved with Philistine women, it is you, but you want us to go get you hooked up with this, this, this someone that's not even of our race. This is against the law. I mean, this is against the law of Moses and Joshua. Right before he died, he said, hey, don't marry their women, okay? And it wasn't because God was against interracial marriage. It had nothing to do with that. It's because, like, it was like, some of, it's like someone from KU meeting someone from Wichita State. And then they get married. And they bring all their idols with them. And they merge all of the sweatshirts and hats and all this and paraphernalia and have this mixed thing going on. Okay, in a similar way, the problem was when you married outside of Israel, everyone brought with them their household, household gods that weren't real to begin with. So the parents say, look, can't we find you a nice, sweet girl here at home? But Samson said to his father, get her for me. She is the right one for me. Because like the nation, Samson had decided, hey, it's my life. It's my right to do what's right in my own eyes. But of course, the story ends in tragedy. He goes down into the nation. He's with the Philistine, in the Philistine territory. He's surrounded by Philistines at this wedding. They all hate him, but they're afraid of him. And of course, he ends up offending all of them. They kick him out of his, their country. They take his wife from him, marry her off to someone else. But then later on, because of her association with Samson, she's burned to death. There's another time where he goes out over the border one night. He spends the night with a Philistine woman for a one-night stand. The building gets surrounded. He has to bust out like in this supernatural feat of strength and escape. And throughout his life, he's just completely irresponsible with this gift that God has given him. And he's just consumed with his lust for Philistine women. Now, that's kind of the summary. You really should go back and read the whole story for yourself. The details really begin to develop when we get introduced to this woman 
right here, Delilah, and who you've all heard of before, and if you're not, there's that night radio show where she gives all the advice, different Delilah. Okay, Samson, Delilah. Now, if you've ever read or heard the story, or as I talk about it today, if you think to yourself, and, and this may be more the women than the men that will think this, but if there's something in you when you hear this story that goes, could any man really be that stupid? Is it possible for a man to actually be so worked up in his desire for a specific woman that he would continue to make the same stupid decision over and over and over? And men, what's the answer to that question? Yes. See, the men in the we know, okay? So some of you are sitting with your wife, staying quiet, eyes forward. I get it. All right. But you read the story, and ladies, if part of you goes, no man would be that stupid, just know every man listening goes, because every man knows what I'm talking about. Because, man, like for nearly all of us, there's been some point in your life as a teen or as a man where you've gotten so worked up over a woman or the image of a woman or the idea of a woman that you've done some of the dumbest things in your life. Right? You don't even like me bringing it up in church. Like, why has he got to do this? Okay, but because we look back and we go, how could I have been so stupid? Because sex is powerful. In fact, our desire for sex is probably the most powerful thing there is. It just drives us to do crazy things. And the reason, and ladies, I know, I'm sorry, I know you're stuck with us, and I'm not going to say it's God's fault because, yes, God created us, but then sin came in and broke everything. But basically, what you're stuck with is men really just need three things because we're simple. We need food, sex, and occasionally a pat on the head. It's like, oh, that was so good. I saw that. You did good. I saw you, honey. Way to go, Okay. See, this is all we need. And if we have to choose one of the three, we're going to starve to death. Okay, so if, when I tell you this story, if I tell you this story, it's like there's no way any man can be that stupid. That the desire for a particular woman would drive a man to these extremes. Unfortunately, I'm just here to tell you it's absolutely possible. And it is not as rare as I wish it was. Now, now ladies, I'm going to pick on us men for most of the time around Samson, but I just want to take a moment to say some things to the ladies, especially the single ladies, okay? Even the married ladies for whom, if this hasn't happened already, there is a statistically very good chance that eventually a man will be vying for your attention, not your husband, and he won't care that you're married, and it will be tempting. I've had conversations with so many young women, and women in their 30s and 40s, they become starry-eyed with a guy, and it ended in pain. You know, and I've tried to warn many of them, like, this isn't going to end well. They blow me off, and it ends in pain. And after all these years of ministry, I've concluded that while, while men are simple, so many of the ladies, not all of them, but so many of the ladies that I've talked to, they were far too often naive because they consistently, they believed the same stupid things men said over and over and over again. You know, but, but I love you. You're the only one for me. We need to see if we're compatible. We need to see if this can work out. You know, it's like buying a car. You've got to test drive it before you buy it. I mean, you wouldn't go buy a pair of shoes without trying it on, right? Maybe we should look at it more like a toothbrush. But, you know, if we just sleep together or if we just move in or hey, if no one finds out, it's not hurting anyone. I mean, we're both feeling alone or unloved or unsatisfied. I mean, I don't know the lines 
the guys have fed you, ladies. But men will figure out what to say when they're a man that is determined to do what he wants, when he wants, with who he wants. And one of the reasons I know this is, one, I am a man. And secondly, because I've talked to so many women who look back at some of the, the decisions that they regret the most sexually with relationships, and they say, how could I have been so stupid? Because men said things that they liked. A man said things that were persuasive. And the ladies believed them, not realizing that what was really happening, what the bottom line was, is that they were dealing with a man that was going to say whatever he needed to get what he wanted, when he wanted, with who he wanted. And you were the who. And in that moment, they did this without any regard to how this would affect you ultimately. But then at some point after they got what they wanted, things just fell apart. And now you carry it with you. Or you may be in the middle of it right now. And I want so much better for you. And the God who loves you, no matter what the past, wants better for you. And the next generation of women that right now are in our Kids Life program, back in the back, we and God wants better for them. And here's the most offensive thing I'm going to say all day to single women, and then we'll get back to Samson and abusing the men. Ladies, God designed your body as the dessert, not the appetizer. Okay? I've had so many conversations with women, with single women, hundreds of young women, and I've practically pleaded with single young women to draw pretty strict lines when it comes to the access that they allow men to have to their bodies. Until he stands before God, friends, and family and commits his life and all of his life to you till death do you part. Because that is God's perfect context for beautiful sexual expression. And as so many women I've talked to have learned the hard way or are still struggling to learn, if you keep serving your body up as the appetizer, then it should be no surprise that guys aren't sticking around for the main course. But they struggle to realize that the common denominator can actually be found in the mirror. And one of the other things women are increasingly struggling with is porn. And again, I've worked with literally thousands of young women, and the research affirms my experience, especially with the instant access that they have. They, whether uh, it, it, they're finding, girls and women are finding themselves addicted to porn. And exercising their freedom to choose, now they can't stop what began as recreation or as release, but now they can't break free because sex is a powerful thing. God created it. And it's a wonderful thing, but if you get outside the bounds for what God created it for to be, it's just destructive. And you don't have to be a Christian to believe that. You just have to live a little. Live a few years. Now back to the story of Samson abusing the man, okay? Sometime time later, Samson fell in love with a woman in the valley of Sorek whose name was Delilah. And once again, creeping around at night in areas that he shouldn't be, he goes down and he meets another woman, and this isn't just a one-night stand. This is like, oh my gosh, this is the love of my, my life. She's the one. I mean, yeah, I know my first wife got burned up and everything, but this is the one, okay? And 
Well, the rulers of the Philistines find out that Samson's like all enamored with Delilah. So they went to her and said, hey, see if you can lure him. And you've got to think about that word. My grandfather was a professional fishing guide. Uh, you know what a lure is? A lure is something that looks real, but it's not. And you wiggle it around in front of the fish and they go, oh, good. And then they go, oh, bad. Okay, so this is the lure. See, see if you can lure him into showing you the secret of his great strength and how we can overpower him, that we, we may tie him up and subdue him. Each one of us will give you 1,100 shekels of silver, which translates into about $100,000 in current terms, okay? Figuring inflation. So Delilah said to Samson, tell me the secret. Tell me the secret of your great strength and how you can be tied up and subdued. subdued. And I say it like that because I don't think this was over dinner or coffee, okay? I'm pretty sure there was some candlelight, a little Kenny G, Sade in the background, you know, in the bed, clothes on the floor. Baby, tell me how you can be tied up and subdued. Now, this should be his first clue, all right? It's just like, you want to know how I can be subdued? So Samson answered her because, as men, we never grow out of being junior high. Like, oh, let's have some fun with this. So Samson answered her, okay, if anyone ties me up with seven fresh bowstrings that have never been dried, I'll become as weak as any other man. And you think, Samson, what are you doing? God has set you up for amazing things. Why would you even consider letting someone know how you could become just like any other man? Well, then the rulers of the Philistines brought her seven fresh bowstrings that had not been dried, and she tied him with them, with men hidden in the room. Don't want to think about that too much. She called to him, Samson, the Philistines are upon you. But he snapped the bowstrings as easily as a piece of string snaps when it comes close to a flame. So the secret of his great strength was not discovered. And then, though this should have been the end of the relationship, then Delilah said to him, Samson, you've made a fool of me. You lied to me. Okay, time out. Of course he lied to you. You're trying to deceive him. It's like, this is a great relationship. Come now. Tell me how you can be tied. So he says, okay, uh, it wasn't bowstrings. It's new rope. If anyone ties me up securely with new ropes that have never been used, I'll become as weak as any other man. So strangely enough, the same thing happens. She gets him drunk. He passes out. He's all tied up with new rope. Surprise, surprise. She says, the Philistines are coming. The Philistines are coming. He jumps up, boom, breaks the ropes, just does what he's always done. And you look, again, you, you think, Samson, what are you doing? Delilah then said to Samson, all this time you've been making a fool of me and lying to me. Tell me, tell me. Tell me how you can be tied. And, and, and this is, again, where, what is happening? You keep waking it up, and it just so happens that the very thing that you told her has happened. Are you so stupid? Yes. But he's not stupid because he's Samson. He's stupid because he's a man. Okay, so it, and she apparently, she's just that beautiful. She's offering whatever she's offering to him physically, sexually, with her body, and it just overpowers his common sense. And it also overpowers his desire to be great as God has set him up to be. So now he gets danger close. Okay, here's what you need to do. Weave the seven braids of my hair into the fabric on a loom and tighten it with a pin and I'll become as weak as any other man. So sure enough, while he's asleep, she does this. She cries out, the Philistines are coming. He wakes up, tears everything apart, walks out and just does what he's always done up to this point. Then she said to him, 
how can you say you love me? How can you say you won't even confide in me? It's like, ladies, I don't even want to read this verse. Like, you have no idea how much, you have all the power, okay? So here's Delilah. It's like kind of having a pity party. You don't, you don't love me. You won't confide in me. This is the third time you've made a fool of me and you haven't told me the secret of your great strength. And with such nagging, okay, don't be mad at me. It's in the Bible, all right? With such nagging, she prodded him day after day until he was sick to death of it. So finally, he told her everything. See, when my people see my long hair, they know that there's something special about me. When they see my great strength, they know that the Spirit of God resides on me. But I love you, Delilah, and I can't take it anymore. So here's what I've never told anyone. No razor has ever been used on my head, he said, because I have been a Nazarite dedicated to God from my mother's womb. God has called me and set me up for something special and amazing, but if my head were shaved, my strength would leave me, and I would become, weak, become as weak as any other man. So she gets him drunk, he goes to sleep, and he wakes up with a haircut. And we're told, she yelled, the Philistines are upon you, and he got up expecting to do what he'd always done, but the Spirit of God had left him. And the Philistines seized him. And they gouged out his eyes, which had been his problem from the very beginning. And they bound him in bronze shackles just in case. They took him down to Gaza, where they set him to grinding grain in prison, and he dies in shackles as a prisoner. How could anyone be so stupid? But it's simple. Because when you or I determine it's my life, I'm free to do what I want, when I want, with whom I want, who I want. I'm free to do what's right in my own eyes. It's my life. When you give in to the kingdom of covet and ignore the kingdom of conscience, if you, and if you've never yielded your life to your creator God who loves you, eventually, inevitably, you will get yourself into trouble, and eventually, and inevitably, you will do stupid things. And sooner or later, you look back, and suddenly... It's as clear as it could have ever possibly been. And you ask, how could I have been so stupid? Here's why I told you this whole story. And this is so key. Do you know what God wants to do in and through your life? The answer is no. You don't. I mean, you may have some ideas, but... You have no idea what God wants to do in and through your life. You just don't. You have no idea what God would do if you were to yield your entire life to Him, including, including your expression of your sexuality. You have no idea. And again, most of today is focused on the physical act between two people, but the conversation on sexual expression goes into porn. You know, what do you do when your body wants what your heart knows is wrong? Because again, while for generations there was this huge percentage gap between the number of men versus the number of women engaged in porn use, that gap has narrowed greatly. This most recent study put the number of women who have watched porn within the last month at 40 to 50%. And again, with my work with young adults, I know this is true. And I've had single men and women, for example, tell me, hey, you know, I, like, I know I shouldn't do it, but it's not that big of a deal. Once I get married, I'll quit. Once I get married, it won't be a problem anymore. And imagine their surprise when, in fact... It's a problem, and it doesn't go away. 
And they find that the very thing that was at one point an expression of their freedom now becomes something they can't break free from. And in some cases, it just destroys intimacy and destroys relationship. So I'll repeat. You have no idea what God would do in and through you if you were to yield your life entirely to Him, including your expression of sexuality. You go, well, Chad, I'm not Samson. In fact, I'm really, there's really nothing special about me. And this is so important. 1,300 years later, another Jewish man comes along whose life had been totally changed by Jesus Christ. And he writes the following to Gentiles and to Jews. He says, do you not know? Because they didn't know. Do you not know that your bodies are the temples? They're temples of the Holy Spirit. It's not about a building and a place and the dirt anymore. It's your bodies. The Holy Spirit who's in you, whom you've received from God. It's like, what? Yeah, the the same Spirit that resided on Samson that positioned him and allowed him to do all these great things and these extraordinary things, but he kept getting outside the guardrails of what God had for him in his life. That same Holy Spirit resides in every single one of you as a follower of Jesus. You are not your own. You've been set apart. You were, you were bought with a price. So therefore, here's, here's what you do with that. Honor God with your bodies. You see, if you've ever put your faith in and become a follower of Jesus, the Scriptures teach us that the Holy Spirit inhabits your body. I can't describe exactly how it happens and give you a picture, but that's what we're told. And I know this about you, that the last thing that you want to happen in your life is to get to your 40s, your 50s, your 60s, your 70s, and look back on your life with regret, to look back and think, if only I'd allowed God to invade my heart. If only I'd yielded my life to God, the God who loves me, I would have discovered and experienced the best of His plan for me. The bottom line is that all of us, all of you, you're, you're completely free to live like Samson, like the nation of Israel. To, in the sense that you're free to just keep looking around at the highlight reels of the people around you and do what everyone else is doing, especially what everyone else is doing sexually. You 100% are free to do that. But that road leads to a destination. And as smart and special as you are, just like every road leads to a specific destination, this road leads to a destination in life where you look back and you just you have regret. And you look back and you just wish you could go back and undo and unsay some things, which is exact, exactly what Samson experienced. Not because God is against or offended by sex. I mean, He created it. But God is trying to keep something, or because God is trying to keep something good for you, from you. We talked about that last week. The primary lie that people believe about God is that God is somehow trying to keep me from something good instead of trying to give me something good. Because He's for me. That He wants to bless you. That He wants to protect you. He wants to protect you from the mental and emotional and physical complications that come from sex outside of its design context. He's trying to protect you from the awful conversation like the one that I had to have with the woman that would ultimately become my wife where we had to sit and have that uncomfortable dialogue disclosing our sexual history, wishing desperately at that moment that we could look at one another and go, you're the only one. And the last thing that you want to do is trade up, trade in the potential or the incredible potential that God has for you for just a few minutes or one night or a weekend or a week or a season of your life. 
You know, I can't even remember her last name, or I don't even remember his first name. It was just spring break. It was just a night at the pump house. We went out afterwards. It was just one night. You know, deep down I knew that I shouldn't, but I gave in to what my body wanted that my heart deep down knew was wrong, but I just covered that up with alcohol. Or there's, there, there's the experience of seeing the look in your boyfriend or your girlfriend or your spouse's face when they discover or they experience the consequences of the secret grip of porn in your life. And if you don't know this already, you discover, discover it eventually that there's nothing like sexual sin. There's nothing like sexual sin to derail you. And the irony is just about any other kind of sin, just about any other kind of sin you can almost completely put in the rearview mirror of your life and move on. You know, you can get forgiveness, you can apologize, you can pay them back, maybe do a little time. But, but you know this, when it comes to sexual sin, it's like it just tends to follow you around for the rest of your life. Sex is more than just physical. I mean, this is why, for example, one of the most difficult traumas to overcome is sexual trauma. So what would we expect the Heavenly Father who loves us to say to us? He would say, I'm, I'm not trying to keep good things from you. I'm trying, I'm trying to give good things to you. And I don't want you to sacrifice your future or sacrifice your future, future potential for something you're going to regret. So... We'll end with just going back to the question, what do you do? Or what are you going to do? Or maybe from this point forward, what would you plan to do when your body will inevitably want what your heart knows is wrong? And your answer to this question will be decided by whether you're determined to live from the inside out or the outside in by whether you've yielded your heart to God to say, God, renew my mind, renew my conscience, help me see and respond as you see would have me respond so that from this day forward, instead of doing what's right in my own eyes, I'll do what I suspect is right in my own yielded heart and how you're leading it. And, and, and just know that this tension is going to be with you for the rest of your life, just like it's been with me in my life and will be with me for the rest of my life. But because God loves you and He loves me, He's called you and me in this area to be different from everyone else because He loves us. So would you be willing in this area, your expression of sexualities, to yield this area to your Heavenly Father? Would you be willing to say, God, I want to learn what it means to honor you with my body and I need your help. I can't do this on my own. And if it scares you because you know you might have to change something or share some uncomfortable information with someone or get some help to break some patterns, to break free, that it's going to be hard. But what should be scarier is living the rest of your life without yielding this area because you're old enough to know that it will just lead to regret and hurting some of the people you love the most. Secrets always, always come out. And it always affects a relationship the relationships that matter the most in one way or another. And I am right there with you. So my hope is that you'll learn, that you'll learn, that I'll learn to truly pay attention, to pay attention and keep paying attention to that still small voice of God speaking through your yielded heart and giving you a kingdom conscience. Let me pray for us. Father, I, I am I'm just... I'm humbled and intimidated to stand up here and talk about this today because I know the struggles in my life 
So we are all in this together. So I, I ask for all of us that you guard us in this area, that you strengthen us in this area, whether we're single, whether we're married, wherever the tension points are, where our sexual appetite leads us in a direction that is away from you. I pray for everyone here and myself that you would strengthen us, that you would get a hold of us and lead us, and that you would also give us the courage to do whatever it is that we need to do to guard in this area, to break free in this area, to break free finally in this area, to stay free, that we would lean into one another in relationship, in authenticity, in not pretending. But God, we need your spirit. As Jesus said, you would send a helper. We're asking for that helper, for the strength to do that and overcome. And Father, I just I pray for the, those that are listening to my voice that they just carry so many wounds from their past, from this area. God, I pray that you would just release them. That you would give them confidence of your unconditional love and grace and that they are cherished by you and that there is nothing in their past or present that can separate them from your love and that they would feel that to the core of their soul. I pray all this in the name of Jesus. Amen.